Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Welcome. Glad to be here with you today. Sing with you and now dive into God's word with you. I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you ever come on Sunday mornings and for whatever reason, maybe you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring one, we do always have some, at least we, we did, out on the welcome area. I'll make sure that we do in the weeks following since I'm announcing this. And feel free to grab one. Um, and if you don't have one at home for whatever reason, you lost it or you just have never had one, feel free to go ahead and take one. We just we want you to have one, a Bible. And we do put the text on the bulletin, but I love, I love seeing you all and uh, open up your Bibles as well. So it's good to carry that thing around. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, in, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, we thank you for your word first. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that not only did you speak one time, a long time ago to individuals who wrote things down in this book we call the Bible, but God, we believe that the scriptures are God-breathed as your word tells us. And so when we open up the Bible and seek to understand what it says, you are speaking to us. And so, God, today I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say through this passage. God, I pray that we would have a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus Christ and the humility of Jesus Christ and be changed today. Be transformed. God, your word says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So, God, do that today, we pray, by your spirit. Holy Spirit, come, have your way in this place here today. Do, beyond, do things beyond what we could ask or imagine. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. This time of year, uh, there are lots of distractions. We live in a world where there's lots of distractions anyways. Every day of the, every day of the year, whether it's June or December, whether it's the beginning of February or the end of August, we live in a world where there's lots of distractions. 
But this time of year, it seems like those distractions are only multiplied. And at a time where we should be centering our attention on Christ as we enter this season, Advent season, or as we approach Christmas, oftentimes Jesus, even for Christians, it's so easy to get distracted by lots of other things that he's pushed aside. And so this week and the next week and the week following, we want to take some time away from Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 and look at the Christmas message of Christ. We want to look at why he came, who he is, what he's come to do. We want to center our attention on Christ. Because if we celebrate Christmas this year and we do all sorts of things in the name of Christmas, but we miss Christ, we miss everything. We miss the main point. We miss the main thing. And so this morning, starting and next week and the week following, we want to take time to talk about Christ in regards to Christmas. Christmas is a time where we celebrate the coming of the Son of God into the world. This monumental event that it happened on December 25th, probably not. But this event happened where the Son of God came into the world and it changed everything. And so you and I need to know this. And it needs to go deeper into us and change us. I want to I dare you today. I'm going to give you a dare. I dare all of you here today to ask for a present from God for Christmas this year. Okay? I dare you to ask God for something. I dare you to ask God for humility this year. Maybe you've asked him for that before. Ask him again and keep asking him. I dare you to ask God for humility this Christmas. You and I, everyone here probably wants to be humble. We probably want more humility. We probably know intuitively that, well, of course, no one's perfectly humble. And so I'm sure that I could work on that. We all probably see humility as a beautiful virtue. When we see it in somebody else's life, we like it or we love it, or it might annoy us, I suppose. But it's a good thing. We recognize it's a great thing. When someone is truly humble, truly self-effacing, Conversely, the counterpart to humility, when we see someone who is proud, outwardly, obviously, and arrogant, and a bragger, and totally self-absorbed, it annoys us to to no end. It drives us crazy. It's obnoxious. I remember one time recently hearing somebody say that when we see something in somebody else that drives us crazy... It could be something that we ourselves struggle with. And right when I heard that, I was like, you know what? When people brag and are proud and self-absorbed, it drives me crazy. I mean, don't, don't take it the wrong way, okay? But I, I can pinpoint that from a mile away. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that though I may be more subtle about it, I'm sure it's something that I struggle with. We can spot pride a mile away. But oftentimes it's hard to detect in ourselves. But the Bible is clear that it's the humble who are useful in God's kingdom. It's the humble who are truly great in God's eyes. God says over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, book of Proverbs and in the Gospels, he's going to bring the proud low, but he's going to raise up and exalt the humble. 
without overstating it too much, the missing ingredient in your life could be humility. I think, just looking this morning, uh, just thinking this morning of the, the passage in James that says, why is there quarreling? Why is there fighting among you? Think of your marriage. Think of between you and your kids. Think of between you and a sibling. Or why is there fighting among you? Is it not because passions rage inside of you? Basically, is it not because you don't get what you want? Is it not because we lack humility? Uh, in the book, Screwtape Letters, which is written by C.S. Lewis, it's the set of letters. Um, it's obviously, it's a, I don't know if you call it an allegory, but it's a, or a fiction book. But it's written from a, an uncle demon to a nephew demon. In one of the chapters, I think the chapter is called Humility, um, uh, Screwtape is the uncle writing to Wormwood, his nice name, huh? Um, sounds like a demonic name, I suppose, right? Uh, writing to Wormwood said, when a Christian gets humility, it is dangerous. Now, he was obviously saying that from the enemy's standpoint. When we get humility in a good way, we are dangerous. In a good way. So our text this morning leads us down this path to humility. So let's ask God. Grant me this season humility. So what do I mean by humility? Humility is not being weak and spineless. It is not being unsure of yourself. It's not a beautiful woman telling themselves that they're really ugly. And it's not a gifted and intelligent man saying I'm really stupid and ungifted. It's not that. It's not lacking conviction. Humility is not weak and weakness. On the contrary, to be humble is to be powerful. It is a place of great strength. So in our passage here, here's what humility is. It's selfless, sacrificial service of others. It's being selfless and it's pursuing sacrifice and serving for the sake of others. Which God is pleased with and which God blesses. To be humble is to consciously put yourself in a servant role for the good of others. And that's what verses 3 and 4 exhort us to do. Do nothing, verse 3, from selfish ambition. I think NIV might say rivalry. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, who's he talking to? Each of us. No one's excluded from this. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying humility is turning outward toward others. We are naturally inclined to turn inward on ourselves and be interested in the things we're interested in. And to be all about our interests, the things that we like, our tastes, our hobbies, our family, our time, our resources, everything that is ours. And he's saying, let let each of you not look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourselves. Is that not a great challenge for you and I? To count others more significant than us? 
But before Paul leaves us just to work it out, just leaves us with these raw exhortations to do this, stop doing this and start doing this, he takes us deeper. In verse 5, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to take you and I, really the Spirit of God wants to take you and I, deeper than just the action. You know, don't you, that every one of us can do things that appear humble on the outside without a changed heart, right? We can do things that look humble and be sick in our souls and totally self-absorbed. We can do things for the totally wrong with, with the totally wrong motivation. This is called moralism. Outward actions without an inward change. Moralism is directly opposed to the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ. The gospel changes us on the inside and therefore and then changes our actions on the outside. We sing the song from time to time from the inside out. And that's the direction of God's change. He changes us on the inside and then the fruits come out in the way that we live. Moralism was the problem of the Pharisees, the religious Jews at Jesus' time. But Paul is saying, have this mind in you. Don't just do actions, but have this mind in you. And I think, have this mind in you first. In other words, it starts with a mindset. Not merely mind over matter, but it, but it starts with a deep mindset. Something needs to be planted in our minds. So then what Paul does is he takes us to the ground zero of humility. He says, have this mind in you. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he takes us to the ground zero of humility in all the Bible. He takes us to Christmas. He takes us to the Christmas message. He takes us to the event of Christmas. What Paul is saying is that our minds, our minds need to change. And then he takes us to the epicenter of humility, takes us to Christmas. So you and I want to grow in humility, don't we? We are asking, I dared you. And you don't like to, when you get a dare, don't you? You're like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. I dared you to ask God for humility. Something's rising up in you. I'm going to ask him. Do it, okay? So we want humility. We're asking God for humility. Here's how we grow in humility. We need to see clearly, believe more deeply, and cherish more passionately the central meaning of Christmas. I love gift giving. I love the gatherings with great food. I do. Lots of great food. But that is not the center of Christmas. Good feelings about being with family, is not the center of Christmas. Even singing great songs that just kind of give us a, a cheerful feeling in our heart is not the center of Christmas. Jesus Christ is the Son of God coming into the world. That's what Christmas is all about. So verses 6 to 11, which I want to spend the remainder of our time on, we see three things, okay? These are the things we need to set our minds on. 
These three things, the embodiment of humility. The second is the climax of humility. And the third is the vindication of humility. Let's take those one at a time. First is the embodiment of humility. In the Old Testament, we see bits and pieces of God showing grace and love to individuals, to people, to the lowly, even solidarity with the humble and the weak and the lowly. Here in this passage, we see God totally and radically identifying with the human race in a way that he hadn't before. He comes in such a low and profound way. We see this in verses 6 and 7. It says, though he, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was in the form of God. In other words, he was God. Jesus was God, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was God. He was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be clung to, something to cling to, something that he couldn't let go of. And so what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is a passage. This is the central passage, I think, in all the Bible might be an overstatement, but hey, I'm, I, I overstate things sometimes. So this is one of the central passages, maybe the central passage that speaks of Christ's incarnation, the incarnation of God, God becoming man. The phrase he emptied himself is a phrase that in the history of the church has been somewhat controversial because some have taken that to mean that he emptied himself of his God-like attributes that he was emptied of being God, and therefore Jesus became less than God. He was God, but then he stepped down into the world and became less than God because he emptied himself. I think the NIV might say, made himself nothing instead of emptied himself. But this, this, this phrase does not mean that Jesus became less than God or put off his God qualities the next phrase explains to us what this phrase means. It doesn't say that he emptied himself by putting aside divine attributes like omnipresence and omniscience and omnipotence. But it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. He made himself nothing by being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, the eternal son of God, became a man. Jesus, the eternal son of God, he dwelled with God in the Trinity forever and ever and ever. He became man. Not less than God. He was still fully God, but he was also fully human. Certainly Jesus thought of himself as God. We see in the in the Gospels, when Jesus is interacting with people, especially in the book of John, John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking to Pharisees, they wanted to stone him when he said these words. So clearly Jesus was saying something inflammatory, claiming to be God when he said before Abraham was, 
I am. And then, of course, we have the other I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine, etc. Jesus saw himself as God, but he also became fully human. You might say, big deal. Okay, well, let's let's just think for a moment the circumstances surrounding his birth, surrounding the coming of Christ into the world. The Magi, the wise men from the east came declaring a king has been born. And indeed, one had been born. And not just any king, but a divine one, the true king, the true king of the he- of heaven and earth. Yet he was not born in a palace, but he was born in a stable. He was born in a barn. He was born in a place where animals slept and went to the bathroom. That's where Jesus was born. Do you remember the birth of... The reason I remember this is because it was on the news. It was kind of crazy how this is. But the birth of um, Prince William's child. Well, I can't remember his wife's name. But their child. It was all over the news. And it was all over the internet. And they always had these pictures of this really fancy building behind where the child's being born. I don't know if it was being born in the palace or what. But Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, came down from heaven and was born in a manger. There was no room for him, even in a stinky hotel in first century Bethlehem. He was born in a manger. Think also about who Christ was revealed to. If we had come up with this plan, we would say we need to get the word out to all the big shots. We need to let all of them know. Get the cameras out. Make sure everyone knows that this king has come. Who did God reveal him to? Shepherds? A few shepherds? I mean, a host of angels put on a worship service for some shepherds and some sheep. Mary and Joseph? Mary's this young Virgin girl, I don't know if she was 16, 18, young though. Joseph, this nobody, this carpenter. The Magi, the wise men, these were pagan astrologers from the east. When when the wise men came to Jerusalem to, to inquire about this king that had been born, Herod wanted to kill him, wanted to have Jesus killed. Apparently, the rest of Jerusalem, they were freaked out, but they weren't interested enough to go check it out. These were all insignificant people in the power and political and economic structures of the day. Totally insignificant people. And yet, that's who God chose to reveal Christ to. I remember uh, hearing a debate with um, Christopher Hitchens. And Douglas Wilson, Christopher Hitchens is a, he was, he passed away now, was a very well-known and outspoken and very, um, very witty atheist. And I remember hearing him in this debate talk about how stupid is Christianity? I mean, God decides to reveal himself to a bunch of illiterate people in the Middle East. 
why wouldn't he have revealed himself to a sophisticated culture like China back then? Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, 21, he says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to babes. 1 Corinthians 1, 29 to 31 says uh, that God chose the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. This is just what God does. Think also of the humble comings of Christ, the stigma that would have surrounded Jesus even from the beginning. You might be thinking, what are you talking about? Mary was not married to Joseph yet when they made their way to Bethlehem. Joseph, if you remember the story, was going to put Mary away because he thought she'd been unfaithful to him. I mean, imagine the story, okay? You're Joseph. You go to your betrothed, your, your fiancé. You say, what is going on? You're pregnant. And Mary goes through the story with you. You may respond like, like Joseph did. Yeah, right. Okay. Let's end this. Let's do it quietly because I don't want to. I'm, 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 a, I'm a just man, but let's end this right now. Illegitimate child. That's not what I want to get into. No doubt this followed Jesus to his crucifixion. And all of this, all of this was according to God's plan. God is not putting his plan willy-nilly together as he goes. And I'm so thankful for that. I mean, he's not like, oh, shoot, I didn't think about that. I mean, like when I, when I undertake a project, you know, especially a handyman project at home, which I am not a handyman. I mean, almost every time without fail, I get halfway into something and I don't have a tool or I don't have screws. I mean, I don't have screws or nails or whatever I need. God does not do that. He knew from the beginning when Christ would come, how he would come, who he would be revealed to. He knew from the beginning. It's not like he got into it. It was like, oh, I didn't even think about a virgin pregnant. Oh my gosh. He knew. Nothing happened outside of God's plan. According to God's plan, the Son of God came, became a man, a human being, a baby, a helpless baby, and lived among us and was poor and suffered and experienced pain and had a full-orbed human life in a sin-wrecked world like you and I do. That's what happened at Christmas. He came. That shows us the embodiment of humility. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ. This passage also also shows us the climax of humility. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ did not come into the world so we could have warm fuzzies and nativity scenes this time of year and nice Christmas cards with a baby in it. 
He didn't come merely to identify with human beings. He didn't come merely to identify with us. He did come to do that. But Jesus came on a mission. Jesus came to accomplish something. Jesus came, you might say he was born. I think it's totally right to say he was born to die. That's why he came. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. And this obedience led to the point of death. And not just any death, but even, Paul says, death on a cross. Now, you probably know this, many of you, maybe all of you. But the cross was not the ordinary way of executing people. It was reserved for particularly heinous criminals. And that's how Jesus was executed. It was a shameful way to die. It was humiliating. It was painful beyond measure. And when the, when the Jewish people were hollering for Christ, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, they knew the law said anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And yet, Christ was obedient to God's plan, to the Father's plan, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Matt, don't imagine. The physical pain of a cross was excruciating. The nails going through your wrists and your feet. The being stretched out upon a cross. The asphyxiation, excuse me. I don't say that word very often. Uh, in your, your lungs would be burning. Fluid and perhaps even blood would be filling up in your lungs. And this went on for hours. On top of that, the emotional and psychological pain of the humiliation of the cross. There's a reason why anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Because it was a humiliating way to die. To be hanging on a tree, a cross, most or almost, either fully or almost fully naked. Before people mocking you and spitting on you was humiliating. On top of that, the weight of the sin of the world. I mean, you and I know what it's like to blow it. I mean, we just blow it sometimes. We sin, all right? That word. We just sin sometimes. We blow it. And you know what it's like, don't you, to feel the weight of that. Man, I mean, just to like, man, I, man, I really screwed up today. This is a really sucky day today. I'm, and you just feel the weight of the sin that you yourself committed. Imagine that, well, you can't imagine it. It was compounded a billion times over as Christ was weighed down with the anguish and the guilt of the sin of the world. And on top of that, that's not even the worst. On top of that, Jesus Christ on the cross was rejected by God. Stacy prayed earlier, amazing truth. You will never leave us or forsake us. On the cross, Jesus experienced what it was like to be God forsaken. As he not only bore the weight of sin, 
but also the justice of God, the anger of God, the wrath of God that your sins and my sins deserve. This was all in obedience to the Father. And this was all for your sake and for my sake. This was all looking out, not for his own interests. Oh my goodness. He would have skirted that in a heartbeat. He was looking out for your interests and mine. Why did God choose to have Christ come in such a humble way and die in such a humiliating way? It had to be this way. I mean, it really did. It had to be this way. He was coming into a world that had been ruined by sin. He had to feel the effects of that. He had to atone for it. Only a God-man could truly be a mediator between God and men. He represented God's side faithfully. God is holy and just and majestic. And he represented your side, our side faithfully. We have great need, right, before God. It took God to represent God and man to represent us. Therefore, he is fully God, fully man. He's able to be be a, a true and perfect mediator between God and men. Man, this is an amazing truth that we need to celebrate this time of year. We have a mediator. We have, we have someone who understands what it's like to be a human being who stands before God on our behalf. Very sympathetic toward us. He was made like us in every way. He was totally human in order that he might be, Hebrews 2 says, a merciful and faithful high priest. And yet he was fully God because only God, only God could carry the weight of the sin of the world. No human, no mere human being could. And only God could exhaust in himself the wrath of God against sin. Think of it this way. Your sin and my sin is so bad that God had to come and die for us. That's what it required. God the Son, right? Jesus. Yet we are so loved and adored that Jesus chose to become like us and live among us and identify with us and die for us. So we have humility embodied and humility reaching its climax, but thankfully that's not the end of the story. We also have the vindication of humility. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, stop right there. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you always want to look back. What did it just get done saying? Well, I just talked about it for the last 30 minutes. So we know, right? Christ came in such a humbling way. He went to the cross. He was driven to the cross out of obedience to God and love for you and I. Therefore, he didn't stay in the grave. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, Jesus came in such a humbling way. Have this mind in you. Christ came. He is God, but he came, became a human being. He died on this cross, this rugged tree, in the most horrific way for our sake. Therefore, God highly exalted him. The wise men were right when they said a king had been born. And Herod was right to be afraid. 
Because Christ was not coming to work out some kind of arrangements on how they can share power. He is the king. He came as a king. He hung on a tree as a king with the crown of thorns on his head, suffering for us. He was raised victoriously. He was exalted to God's right hand. And he reigns and rules from there. So you and I are called to have this mind in us. Have this mind among yourselves. But we are very pragmatic people, aren't we? Um, Self-help books sell like crazy in this country. We think, you know what, give me 10 steps to humility and I'll read it and I'll, I'll get it. Four steps would be better. 20 steps, okay, I'll still read it. If I want humility bad enough, I'll read it. I'll memorize the 20 steps and I'll be there. But it doesn't work that way with humility. It doesn't work like a, you know, like a new diet or a new workout plan or you know, an investment plan or something like that. And here's why. Because the more we focus on ourselves and our humility, the more elusive it is. The more out of reach it seems to be. We just can't get our hands around it. We just can't seem to get it. We may think we are, but that's even more dangerous, isn't it? (laughs) The moment we think we're humble and we're patting our backs saying, you are so humble, it's evidence that we are not. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Sometimes we probably need to think less of ourselves, I suppose. We need to think more soberly about ourselves. But anyways, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, you're just a bad person. But thinking of yourself less. Which is why Paul says in verse 5, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Why is this so key? Having this mind in you. We said it starts with a mindset, right? But why? Why is this so key? Why is this so important? I want to end with three. You can call them applications, but don't think of them as steps. Because they're not at all. They're really not steps at all. Okay? It's only to tell us why this is so massively important. First, having this mind in you is so important. This mind which is yours in Christ. And then we went through what Jesus did for our sake. This is so important because humility grows organically or naturally as we learn to walk in our union with Christ more and more. Now, that might sound like mumbo jumbo. Here's what I mean by that, okay? Paul says, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's kind of a strange phrase. But Paul loves these words in Christ. You are in Christ. He says it many times throughout his letters over and over again. It's a really big deal to Paul. To be in Christ means that we are no longer in Adam. Right? The first man who sinned. And all of us were born with a sinful nature because we were born in Adam. Adam was our representative head. But when we believe in Christ, we are moved to being in Christ. Think of it this way. You now have a new address. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. 
And to be in Christ means that you are in union with him. You are so joined to him, whether you realize it or not. If you truly trust in him, you are so joined to him that you become one with him. And when we walk in our union with Christ and know that we are in Christ and having this mind, which is ours in Christ, humility grows. It's like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? It's kind of a different analogy, but when we are born of God and united to Christ, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Not that we've fallen away from Christ or away from him in any sense. But when we're hanging with Jesus, we just can't help but have him rub off on us. When we're walking in union with, in union with Christ by faith, the weeds of selfishness and pride find little room to grow. The second reason why this is so important, having this mind in us, which is ours in Christ. The second reason it's important is because when Christ's humble beginnings, the way that Christ came, the way that he lived, his sacrifice, when these things are enlarged in our hearts, not small, not an add-on, not something that we assume, oh yeah, I know that because I've been a Christian a long time. But when these things are enlarged in our hearts, it is crazy to demand our rights and our privileges. It's insane. When we really think about how Christ came, do we, do we deserve better than him? Of course not. Of course not. Listen to what John Piper said. He said, the gospel of God's painful death on our behalf has a way of breaking our pride and our sense of rightful demands and our frustration at not getting our way. It works lowliness into our souls. Then we treat others with meekness flowing out of that lowliness. Jesus didn't cling to his privileges that he had in heaven. He relinquished them to come down. And when we know that, we're not trying to cling to our rights and our privileges. We live in such a litigious society. Lawsuits all over the place. People demanding their rights. I'm not saying there isn't right and wrong and we shouldn't care about the law being upheld. But as Christians, we should follow our master in his humility. And third, the third reason why having this mind in us, which is ours in Christ, is so important is because what you set your mind on has a huge impact on how you live. I don't think this is controversial at all. I think, I think we intuitively know this. I think sometimes we can even pinpoint, trace attitudes and poor behavior back to, man, well, no, no, duh. I've been thinking about this thing that's really bothered me all day. I've been thinking about how this person slighted me yesterday. I've been thinking about how my spouse mistreated me last night. Conversely, when we are setting our mind on Christ and his humble coming to us and him becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, it just 
what we set our minds on begins to change the way that we live because it changes the inner workings of our hearts and lives. Which is why repentance to change your mind is where we begin and how we continue in the Christian life. The transformed mind leads to sanctified action. So Christ's humility led him to give up his rights, led to obedience, and led to great sacrifice. And he did this for your sake and my sake. I want to end with this verse. Amazing verse. Let this sink into you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, immeasurably rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He was eternally wealthy, eternally rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that you and I, in him, might become spiritually, eternally rich. Do you believe that? Then have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for him coming. Lord, I desperately want to be humble. I desperately want to grow in humility. And I know, Lord, at least insofar as you show me, just the, the, the dark places of my heart at times that just were, were pride, self-absorption rises up. Lord, I want it to be slayed by the truth, put to death in the power of the Holy Spirit by the truth, by the truth we even talk about today. Lord, this Christmas season, as we celebrate, as we gather with others, even as we exchange gifts, I pray, Lord, that the humility of Christ would be at the very center of what we do. You would get the worship you deserve, Jesus. And all the, all the other things we do would flow out of worshiping and loving and adoring you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.